Here we are, and uh, we're halfway through our seminar, and we have covered seven verses. So, um, Marshall asked me downstairs, how far you intend to get? And I said, I don't know, we'll, we'll go this, this session, and then we'll decide whether we're going to do a, a blitz in the last session and cover more, but um, we'll see. This is a class about how to read the Bible, not primarily all of First Peter. Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though tested by fire. So gold is the most precious thing he could think of, probably. And even gold being fragile and, and consumable and losable is put through fire so that it gets more goldy, goldish. And the, the dross is, is burned out of it so that it's even more valuable when it goes through a fire. And your faith, your, the genuineness of your faith is more valuable, may I paraphrase, than the greatest values on the earth. I think that's fair. I think that's what gold stands for here. It's not just gold like, oh, what about platinum? No, no, no. That's not, that's not, doesn't matter what Delta Airlines does. It's, it, gold is the best. And your faith is way, way more valuable than anything on the earth. And the way God thinks about that is that it is so valuable, He will put it through fire of various kinds. So, don't begrudge the school of suffering. God deems it necessary the reason we get angry about suffering is because we, we don't share God's priorities. We, we want our comfort for us, for our children, for the people in Nepal, and we don't like God's judgments. But if we submit ourselves, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, chapter 5, then we would see more of what God is doing. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying that's what we're being taught. Now here's the key question at the end of verse 7. He's putting us through fire so that our faith may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus comes back. Whose praise, whose glory, and whose honor? God's or yours? So let me paraphrase both ways. Your faith is off the charts precious and valuable to God. Why? Why would that be? Because faith reflects His trustworthiness. 
Faith respects his power, his strength. I mean, shows his power. If, if you trust someone, you make them look good. They're going to keep their word. They're strong enough to come through. They'll be there for me. I'm banking on them. They, you make them look good. You, you're just a child trusting mommy and daddy. But the one trusted, strong, faithful. So God loves to be made to look good. That's why he created the world, to display his glory and his power and his trustworthiness in the world. And faith does that. So your faith is so valuable, he, he's willing to put it through fire to burn out all the dross so that when Christ comes back, you will receive praise and glory and honor. Or, so that when Christ comes back, you will be in a position to give Him praise and glory and honor. We were talking downstairs, Norm and I, about why is it that godly people indwelt by the same Spirit, looking at the same Bible, come to different conclusions frequently. This would be one of those cases that, and, and there are numerous answers to that question. One is there are some places in the Bible that are hard. I think this would be one. Another is we're, we're just so finite. We see through a glass darkly. Another is we're all proud. And we tend to want to see things our way, and I don't want to yield to say you were right all along, and others. There, there are all kinds of reasons why people don't agree. I'm inclined to think here that it means y you get praise, glory, and honor. And I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I like to think of myself as a really God-centered guy, not man-centered. I don't like the word man-centered. I don't like man-centered theology. I don't like man-centered anything. That's, I'm, it sounds like I'm giving this a man-centered interpretation by saying, you will receive praise and glory and honor. But it just, here's gold, and gold is esteemed and valued and treasured. Here's your faith, which is way more valuable, way more precious than that. It's just passed through fire. It's coming out beautiful at the end. Jesus shows up. I mean, it just seems like at that moment, the, the thought is drifting towards, Jesus says, well done. Good and faithful servant. Matthew 25. We, we are going to hear that word. C.S. Lewis wrote a sermon called The Weight of Glory. Very influential sermon in my life. The main point of that sermon is that the weight of glory are the words of the Lord Jesus to people like us. Well done. That is a weight you right now. I mean, if you can imagine that, you're naive because you're not doing very well. When he says, well done, good and faithful servant, he's zeroing in on your faith. Not how well you did in all the hundred ways that you blew it, but your faith. And he's saying, that makes me look great. 
I love your faith. You've trusted me. You've made me look trustworthy and strong and able to take care of you. And I praise that. Now, all I know to do by way of confirmation of that is to start poking around in 1 Peter and outside 1 Peter. So let me just share with you a few things that point in that direction. Chapter 5, verse 1, Peter says, I was a witness of his sufferings, and I will be a partaker of the glory to be revealed. He doesn't just say, I will see and praise the glory. I will be a partaker of the glory to be revealed. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 4, we, a faithful pastor will receive the crown of glory. Well, I mean, who's going to put it on your head? To receive a crown of glory at the coming of the Lord, what is that but being praised and honored by the Lord himself? You can see why Lewis would call that a weight of glory. I I, I just know, Lord. And and why we write songs about taking them off and throwing them at his feet because I'm just unworthy to, to have this crown on my head, but he's putting it there. Or chapter five, verse six, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Right now, he's putting you through hell so you don't have to go there. And then there's going to come a day when he exalts you. It's like Philippians, right? He, he was obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him a name. He's going to do that for you. He who humbles himself will be exalted. 1 Corinthians 4, this is Paul now, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, then each one of you will receive his praise from God. I mean, that's just as plain as you can get. Now, whether that, that doesn't prove this text because it's outside of 1 Peter, but it sure confirms it's a possibility. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Then each one of you receive his, yes, he says commendation. The word is literally praise. Romans 2, 6. He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. It's not wrong to seek for glory and honor and immortality. We are going to be glorified with Jesus. We're going to be partakers of him. And one more, Romans 2.29. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. His praise is not from man, but from God. Who do you want to be praised by, man or God? We all want to be praised by men. We love being thought great. And we need to break ourselves of that addiction and look to God for our approval. And we will have it if we do. So that's, that's why I'm inclined to think. Here's a, here's a principle. Um, when, you, when you don't know which a text means... And here's meaning A, and you can look elsewhere in the Bible, and meaning A is a truth. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says it's a truth. Meaning B, we praise God, is a truth. Point to another text. And, and it's, it's just fine if you're a pastor or small group leader, Sunday school teacher, say, I'm not sure, but both are true. And therefore, whichever you land on, it's okay. Just don't be dogmatic, 
maybe, that this text proves that, just know that all over the Bible, both these possibilities are confirmed, and therefore, in the whole of things, it's, it's good to believe both, whichever one is intended here. That's a principle I use a lot when I'm not sure. I look, is the, is the interpretation that I'm, I'm moving toward confirmed elsewhere? If it is, I want to believe it, and then not be too dogmatic about the, whether this text is the place to get it. So I'm inclined to think it means result in your praise, your glory, your honor at the coming of Jesus. Verse 8, though you have not seen him. That was a concern in the, in the early generations that, you know, they're just one generation late. Ooh. They knew people like Peter who had seen the Lord, and they just thought, God, we could, we could just have seen him. And, and Peter wants to say, you didn't, and guess what? You can love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Though you do not now see him, you believe. Though you haven't seen him, you love and you rejoice. So you love Him, you trust Him, you rejoice in Him. Just a, just a brief word. What does it mean to love Jesus? Jonathan Edwards wrote an entire book on verse 8 called The Religious Affections, arguing that loving Christ and joy in Christ are at the heart of Christianity. Affections really matter. So my reason for asking the question is to, is to protect you from a common use of, say, John 16, hmm, 14, 15. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I have heard numerous people say, to love is to obey. It's not a feeling, it's a resolve and an action. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. To which I respond, that's not what those words say. They say the opposite of that. They say, if you love me, which is one thing, you will obey, which is another thing. They're not the same. You're misusing the text. If you love Jesus, you will obey Jesus, which means obedience and love are not the same thing. Root fruit. Make the tree good, and the fruit will be good. A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. The tree and the fruit. Don't distinguish. Don't say, because this tree bears good fruit, therefore the tree is the fruit. So what is it then? And it is, let's just let Jesus, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's Matthew ten thirty seven. So what do you feel for your father? What do you feel for your mom? What do you feel for your kids? You must feel more for me. You must value me more than your children. You must value me more than your parents. In fact, you must value me more than your life. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. 
That's what love is. Love is valuing, treasuring, embracing, enjoying, being satisfied by, and that's why it produces obedience. That's why it changes life, and we'll see that as we go on. So he's stressing here in this, though you have not seen him, you love him, and you rejoice with inexpressible joy. Last question on this before we move to a new paragraph. Do you not see him? Well, he says we don't, so we don't. Is there a sense in which we do? That'd be a fair way to ask it. So he's saying you don't see him, and I'm asking you, is there a sense in which you do see him that wouldn't contradict that? Because I want to know, how do you love somebody that you don't know slash see? Here's Romans, I mean, uh, 2 Corinthians 4. We looked at it once before. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 6, remedy for that blindness. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There is a sense in which you have seen him. When you read the Bible, especially Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what happens according to verse 6 here is that God, by a miracle, shines into your heart through the words, through the truth. And what shines there is called, in verse 4, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Which means that as the gospel and all of its aspects are unfolded in the Bible, the Holy Spirit shines through those words into your heart and you see the glory of Christ. Or as verse 6 says, He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. As you read the story, Christ Himself, His person, stands forth and your knowledge of God in Christ is like a light shining in your heart. I think this is how you come to have confidence in the gospel that enables you to die for it. You know, most people don't die for probabilities. If you've heard the gospel and you say, well, I don't really know if it's true or not. I wasn't there. I couldn't see. Well, guess what? The people who were there didn't believe either. Pharisees didn't believe. Judas didn't believe. He was in, on the inner circle for three years and didn't ever value Jesus above 30 pieces of silver. The way you know that the gospel is true and that the Bible is true is by seeing him. Not to contradict Peter, physically you don't see him. You weren't there and he's not here physically. But when you read your Bible, God intends for the, to use the words of 
Ephesians 1.17, the eyes of your heart to be enlightened so that you know what is the hope of your calling, the greatness of your inheritance, and the power at work in those who believe. So I think we need to be very careful that we don't write off all seeing when we hear Peter say, you don't now see him. And when he calls this joy here, this joy, inexpressible and filled with glory or glorified, I think the idea is this. The joy is in the inheritance, in the salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time, in Jesus Christ, showing up in glory. And when you have your hope fixed on hope like that, it comes back into the present and you taste some of it now. And the, that's why it's called glorified, because the glory that's coming can be tasted so that the, the joy that is being awakened by that coming glory is a glorified joy. It's a glorious joy. Beholding the Lord, we are being changed from one degree of glory to the next, 2 Corinthians 3.18. So I think that's the reason glorified and inexpressible are used here, that our joy is not in the present mainly Though there are many things that God does in the present that make us happy. It's in what's coming to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we are thus obtaining the outcome of our faith, namely the salvation of our souls, even now in part.